1: Welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. This is your host, Alan Pierce. I'm with the law firm of Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano in Salem, Massachusetts. And we are bringing you another edition of Workers' Comp Matters here on the Legal Talk Network. And this is actually a rebroadcast of an interview uh, that we recorded about three years ago in late 2018 uh, with Professor John Burton Jr. And uh, those of you who deal with Workers' Comp in any way, shape, or form should be well familiar. With our guest, Professor Burton, has attained both his law degree and PhDs from the University of Michigan. He uh, has been on the faculty of Cornell, and he is a professor emeritus of economics and labor relations at Rutgers. He is probably the most well-known and leading authority on workers' comp, both nationally and internationally. He has written hundreds of papers, articles, delivered lectures, uh, but perhaps he is best known as being chair of the National Commission on State Workers' Compensation Laws. Actually, it was originally called the National Commission of State Workmen's Compensation Laws. This was a commission that was established as part of the OSHA Act of 1970, uh, which created OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. But it also created this commission to look into the state of workers' compensation in the United States, and with the thought that many of the states were well behind providing adequate benefits and an adequate system of delivering those benefits, yet at the same time keeping premiums affordable for industry and employers. So as part of the OSHA Act, President Nixon appointed a commission which worked for well over a year and delivered their report to both Congress and President Nixon on July 31st, 1972. And that report over the last 50 years has been considered to be a rather watershed moment in the development of workers' compensation since that time. We have about a 100-year history of workers' comp in this country. It began in 1911. And in 1972, this report created approximately... 84 or so recommendations for all the states to adopt, 19 of which were deemed essential. And the impetus for convincing the states to adopt as many of these recommendations as possible was perhaps the possibility of a more federal intervention over workers' compensation programs, which have generally been left to the states to design and implement. And the commission did its work in... Uh, short order. It was difficult to reach consensus. There were 18 members of the commission and uh, John Burton was the chair of the commission. We are fortunate to be able to hear from John today, 50 years later. And the reason we are rebroadcasting this interview is that 2022 being the 50th anniversary of the report of the commission, that there has been a planning committee and there will be a series of events across the country where many workers' compensation groups, Whether they be bar associations or other types of uh, conferences that deal with workers' comp, uh, they will be focusing on both the commission and its recommendations. And most importantly, what does the future hold for workers' compensation given the changing nature of our economy in 2022 as opposed to 1972? So here's my conversation with Professor John F. Burton, Jr. Professor John Burton. And John, I really have looked forward to this show for a long time, and I want to thank you for being a guest today on Legal Talk Network.
0: Well, I'm pleased to be here, Ella. I've known you for a long time, and we've been good friends, and it's it's fun to do this kind of, of a program with you.
1: Yeah, there is so much area that we could cover in a short period of time, but what I really would like to do is, is sort of go back in history, your history a little bit, and how did— Professor John Burton actually come into the field of workers' comp, and I, I know you were kind enough to send me a little biographical information, and you, too, were somebody who may have had a, a brief introduction to workers' comp with an injury yourself. Well, Eric?
0: that's true. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. I, 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 normally, I don't put that down, but it, it, you kind of forced me to, to recall up. The, all, all the aspects of the thing. I was, I, I was working in a... Hardware store in high school, and the last day of work, I was going around, and we had a hand-drawn elevator, and uh, the, the procedure was to make sure that the lock was on, that the in, inside the elevator, the cage rode up and down, and so I was talking to a friend, full coworker, and I backed into the elevator, sh- elevator to pull this. Break on, and it turns out the elevator wasn't on that floor, it was on the floor right. up. So, filled out an elevator shaft mm-hmm. and uh, knocked myself out, but eventually came to and was taken. Went home, and then I didn't feel very good at night. And they took me to the hospital, and I had a checkout, and I was fine. So, never never lost any time, just uh, it was but uh, in retrospect, I was damn lucky that I wasn't hurt more seriously because they certainly. Yeah. Pulling down a little by a shaft is not exactly a way to uh, celebrate your youth.
1: No, I guess that's what we call a med-only claim, not a lost time claim. Yeah,
0: med-only claim, exactly. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yep. All right, so you know, I, I gave you a, you know kind of a brief introduction, and, and uh, indeed, sure. you may have started out in engineering, but what drew you to the field of economics and labor relations?
0: Well, I transferred from engineering at the uh, Case Institute of Technology into Cornell, and Cornell as a school of industrial labor relations. Um, I was into that school. It turns out that I really became very interested in the labor field in general and uh, economics, law, and the history was all taught in that school. And uh, when I decided to, when I graduated, I tried to figure out what to do and decided I wanted to be a lawyer. I'd been on a debate team and, uh, you know, I guess that's a natural place for people to go to who were debaters and so I went off to Michigan Law School and I'd have to say in all honesty uh, it uh, engineering was not very interesting and law was even worse so <laughs> I decided pretty quickly I didn't want to be a practicing lawyer however because of my background in labor I was working for a law professor who was doing a lot of arbitration and that really appealed to me that you know I could make a contribution as an arbitrator and so I I stayed through law school, got got the degree Uh, for various reasons. My wife was halfway through a graduate program when I graduated from law school, and so I stayed on a year to get a master's degree in economics, the plan was, and planned to make that part of my arbitrator's career. But it turned out that if uh, engineering wasn't my calling and law wasn't my calling, economics was. So I stayed in the program, got a PhD in economics. And so I've been kind of a um, hybrid, if you will, of you know, law and economics through my career. And I got into workers' compensation kind of a, by serendipity, which is essentially the way that these other things happen. You know, how do I get from case to Cornell and so on? Um, I was working on a, my exams in, in the PhD field. And in the meantime, somebody who picked up the topic I thought I was going to write on, which was minimum wage laws. And when I got through with my exams and started to go back to the topic, I found this friend of mine had inadvertently picked up the same topic I was. So I was searching around for a topic. And it turned out that the Upjohn Institute, located in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which has been a major publisher of, of books in the labor relations or unemployment insurance and and so on, had sponsored a series of studies of the competitive environment of Michigan. And they had they've sponsored studies on taxes and wages and transportation costs and so on. And by the time I looked at the list from Upjohn, the only one that was left on the uh, list that hadn't been chosen by somebody else was workers' compensation or workmen's compensation as it was known then. So I even though I had taken a course in workers' comp or to some extent, an undergraduate, I didn't know much about the field. I started reading about workers' compensation, and somehow it just clicked. It was very interesting to me, and it remained as interesting for over, I don't know, since since the nineteen fifties, a long time. Yeah. So I wrote a dissertation on uh, the interstate differences in workers' compensation costs and their significance, and uh, that's how you know it was by sheer luck that I got into workers' compensation, but once I was in, I, I was kind of in for, for a lifetime run on that field.
1: In fact, I'm looking at the title of your dissertation, The Significance and Causes of the Interstate Differences in the Employer's Costs in Workman's Compensation. That could probably right. be a title today because I think, as we'll get into later in the show, uh, the differences in costs— among and between the states um, are a major factor in what we're seeing now in changes uh, or not changes to workers' comp statutes. It's this, this competition uh, between geographical close states and the desire to attract business or to keep business from, from going next door. All right. So let's get back. You 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 uh, were at Cornell. Now was it at Cornell? I, I believe Professor Arthur Larson, who also probably needs no introduction, the author of the the treatise in the very early fifties, which is still the bible uh, that those of us yes. who practice near. Was he at Cornell when you were there?
0: He had left Cornell and had gone to actually originally um, University of Pittsburgh as a as a dean, and then he went on to the federal government and was working in the Eisenhower administration when I. Hmm first heard him speak at Cornell. He came back as as a former professor and talked about, he had recently published a book called uh, A Modern Republican Looks at His Party or something like that. And um, I want to hear him speak. um, As I have indicated in other things I've written, I was on the verge, I was raised as a Republican and have been a Republican all my life, but this is the one time I came close to switching to be a Democrat because a friend of mine on the debate team at Cornell, was trying to convince me that I should become a Democrat and vote for Adley Stevenson. And um, I went to hear Larson speak, and he so persuaded me that the Republican Party was uh, such a great institution that I decided to stay with the Republican Party. And uh, so Arthur Larson essentially was the key person in convincing me to be Republican all my life, which had it an impact later in my life, which which we'll get into. But the point yeah. is that Larson was a very distinguished person. He was Under Secretary of Labor, and uh, very well known in the legal profession because he had this. He just started this treatise on workers' compensation, which incidentally I still subscribe to all right. after all these years. So it's it is for me the a, a dominant uh, feature of my education in workers' compensation has been the Larson treatise. So that's how I got started in this, and and at Cornell as an undergraduate, as I say that's what saved me to be a a, a Republican. Mm-hmm. Now, as fate would have it, uh, Larson, after he left the Eisenhower administration, became a professor at uh, Duke University, and the law school faculty there. And uh, he, he was working on his treatise, and he was also active in the Republican Party. But in 1964, I believe it was, he, became, he was dissatisfied with the Republican nominee for president, who was Barry Goldwater. And so Arthur uh, became national co-chairman of Republicans for Johnson, uh, Johnson obviously being the Democratic candidate who successfully won that election. So Arthur uh I thought that was a in in retrospect uh amazingly courageous thing to do because he knew it was going to jeopardize in some ways his you know his attractiveness, his his ability to do certain things. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that when we got to nineteen seventy one, which is when the National Commission's membership was put together by the by the White House uh, you mean, as you mentioned, I was chair—the of the chairman. We have to date these things. It's, right. It used to be called workmen's compensation. When I was there, I was a chairman, and we don't do that anymore. But it, the reason I got picked up was Arthur was was the obvious candidate to be person. He should have been the chair of the national commission. He was—you know—he was a Republican. He was a leading legal scholar and best-known person in the field. But he was blacklisted. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, a little too, mo- too much of a moderate Republican.
0: Yeah, because he had come out and, and supported uh, uh, Johnson. So I was, you know, the uh, statute said that uh, had a list of categories of people who could be on the commission, and one of the categories with, was educators with expertise in workers' compensation. Mm-hmm. Well, if you looked across the country, there were only two of us who were Republicans who were experts in workers' compensation. I may be exaggerating slightly, but I think that's probably pretty close to it. There were other scholars in workers' compensation, but as far as I know I was the only Arthur and I were the only Republicans once and he was he was blackballed and so the the choice then came down to it was pretty easy to pick the one person who was a legitimate Republican who was um, also a legitimate scholar in workers' compensation. So I got picked to be on the commission and was picked to be chair.
1: Now, this commission was established as part of the OSHA law in 1970. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, right. it, it, it consisted of three cabinet-level members of the administration and then 15 members from the industry uh, appointed by the president right. uh, to do a comprehensive study of the state's workmen's compensation laws. Now, you know, we look at the field of workers' comp now that we, you know, it's been over 100 years in the United States. 1911, I think, has been credited as the year that it, it began officially in terms of uh, a constitutionally upheld state workers' comp law. So if we if we look at this hundred and seven hundred eight year period, I think we can look at and now look back and see various eras. And um, I suppose we can look at 1972 and the report as Perhaps the end of one era and beginning of the other, uh, the next era. Uh, tell us what the world of workmen's comp, workers' comp, was like pre nineteen seventy two, pre nineteen seventy. That would have inspired, probably not who you would think would be a progressively labor oriented president, such as Richard Nixon, to appoint a national commission, which I understand was. Uh, was done at the request of Jacob Javits, another Republican, perhaps of a more moderate right. bent in terms of uh, labor relations. So, what was the lay of the land pre nineteen seventy? Well,
0: I think there was a lot of concern about uh, workers' compensation. Um, the The program had been the first social insurance program, as you say, started in nineteen eleven, and it wasn't until the nineteen thirties that other social insurance programs became very very important. Unemployment insurance had had existed perhaps before the 30s, but it was never uh, as dominant as the Social Security system itself. So
1: Yeah, the New Deal.
0: Yeah, the New Deal. The New Deal changed yeah. things. And, uh, mm-hmm. and one other thing that's relevant in terms of the story of workers' compensation is that the legal system or the legal constraints that existed in 1911 were such that the program had to be started at the state level because the Supreme Court had interpreted the Commerce Clause in a way that's prohibited federal government from regulating interstate commerce as so far as it was affected by labor matters. And it wasn't until the 1930s um, that uh, Jones Locker's steel case uh, essentially reversed that longstanding doctrine and indicated that the federal government could regulate uh, labor markets. And that's why Among other things, the National Labor Relations Act, the basic collective bargaining act, was possible only because the Supreme Court had changed its view on what was constitutional for the federal government to do. Now, workers' compensation was already in place as a state system and could have been, presumably, from that point on, made a federal program. And indeed, OSHA, just to follow the point of federal standards, prior to 1970, the states were pretty much in control of the safety, workplace safety. And uh, OSHA essentially revolutionized the way we handled workplace safety and allowed the federal government to essentially take over the safety programs. Now, states, if they meet certain standards, can take control of their own state Program is subject to; they have to be as as good a program as a, as what's in OSHA. But workers' compensation stood out as the only um, program by 1970 that was still basically a social insurance program or protective labor legislation program that was almost exclusively controlled by the states. And I think what happened was, uh, although. It had been around for 50 years at least. By then, in the post-World War II period, the states uh, had pretty well neglected workers' compensation. And indeed, if you look at the level of cash benefits in workers' compensation as of 1972, they were low, lower relative to the state's average weekly wage than they had been at the end of the Depression. So we had gone through, although there were some states that were improving their laws, in fact, overall, there's been deterioration in the adequacy of cash benefits in workers' compensation. And there were some other features of workers' compensation that were also lagging behind. Uh, Coverage was nowhere near as extensive as it was in the UI program, for example, even though the UI program has a large element of state control. Workers' comp had lagged behind in expanding its coverage to various kinds of employers. And so, the, the, I think Jabbett's had picked up essentially a concern that was felt through the progressive part of the of the of the world and or the country, and figured that workers' compensation deserved a careful look. I think, in, in Jabbett's view, it probably his his view was it probably should have federalized the program. So that's where the that's that's the starting point. Incidentally Javits is kind of an interesting figure. It used to be in the early 1970s. You, you may remember this: Javits was a dominating figure in the Senate. The joke was, in a sense, that there were four parties in the in in the U.S. Senate. There was uh, Northern Democrats, Southern Democrats, Republicans, and Javits. And he, because he was a dominant figure in foreign affairs, he was a dominant figure on. U.S. political events, so that the fact that Jamitz was behind this commission explains why it was created. Mm-hmm. Nixon, I think, was not enthused about the fact that it was a national commission, and indeed, as we can talk about in a moment, the outcome of the national commission was not something that the Nixon administration necessarily supported. Although one would have to say, it's interesting, if you look at the Occupational Safety and Health Act itself, when it was passed in 1970, it had very strong support from both Republicans and Democratic parties, carried with large majorities in the House and the Senate, and was supported by the White House. So it's hard to imagine that kind of environment anymore, where you would have bipartisan support across both, both houses, and mm-hmm. p- plus the president supporting a progressive piece of legislation. But that is, in fact, what OSHA was. To be sure, within a couple of years, uh, OSHA became much more controversial as it began to be applied, and it became obvious what the thing what was about. But initially, OSHA was strongly supported, and one of the things that was hanging over the National Commission when we were appointed was we had representatives primarily from insurance industry employers, state agencies, and so on. A few labor people, uh, but mainly it was dominated by relatively conservative uh, folks. And they were very concerned that the example that had been set by OSHA, which was to federalize the state programs, was going to happen to workers' compensation. And that was an issue that that hung over our heads for that, that whole year. Now, what happened during the year was it was a fascinating experience. We had a dozen hearings and meetings, at least a dozen around the country, and also commissioned a lot of studies and had experts come in and talk to us. And I think all of us were surprised at how bad the system was. Uh, we knew there were problems with the system, but. When we got out and began to hear stories about people being and totally disabled and running out of their benefits after three or four years and then being thrown into welfare because there was no workers' comp benefits uh, longer than that, and the fact that, as I say, the benefits cash benefits were not high. In fact, the maximum weekly benefit in most states as of 1970 was below the national poverty level for a family of four. So we had a really interesting experience over that year of people who were on this commission became very much friends and uh, colleagues and believers that something needed to be done here. Hmm. And uh, what we did was end up with a recommendation that there should be some federal standards for the state program that we had 19 of our recommendations were designated as essential, and we said that um, our recommendation was that states should be given three years to bring their laws up to compliance with those essential recommendations. And if they didn't, then the federal government should intervene in the form of congressional mandates, a federal law that would Establish standards for these state programs.
1: And this, of course, is something the insurance industry did not want, was federal standards.
0: Well, I would say the commission actually had representatives from the insurance industry. I think people were convinced, and this is my own view on this thing, that they were so concerned about how badly the program was operating that something pretty drastic needed to be done. And federal... None of us – well, I shouldn't say none of us. A couple of the labor representatives would have supported a federal program to get rid of all the state programs. But I think the um, insurance industry, in fact, along with employers on the commission, voted in favor of these federal standards. We had 18 members. It was the unanimous mm-hmm. vote for federal standards and workers' compensation. Again, hard to believe yeah. given the current mm-hmm. political environment that you could ever get it people with diverse viewpoints to support something like this unanimously. And it obviously caught the attention of a lot of people. When our report came out, it was a front-page story of the New York Times. And um, as I it was often pointed out that the same front page also had a little story below our story was talking about this strange break-in at this hotel in Washington that the Democratic National Committee had been burglarized of course, that led on to the Watergate scandal. And as I've often said, it's the only time in history that the workers' compensation was given more press attention than, than the Watergate thing.
1: Yeah, I think Yeah, your story was above the fold, and the Watergate story was below the fold on the front page. Yeah,
0: Right, exactly. Yeah.
1: Before we move off the uh, National Commission, you mentioned there was 15 members. Uh, you know, there was, there's one yeah. member that I, I personally knew or peripherally knew, and that, that was a lawyer, a claimant lawyer. Sam Horovitz. Sam was from Boston. He was a Harvard-trained lawyer. He took up the mantle of representing injured workers back in the 20s when very few people were doing it, and if they were doing it, they were doing it pro bono. They were doing it out of law clinics. And he, without going into elaborate details, Sam established the National uh, Association of Compensation Claimant Attorneys (NACA) in the late 40s, which really brought the practice of workers' comp law from the claimant's perspective really into the 20th century. It allowed an exchange of information to publish the NACA journal. It professionalized the practice and it allowed us to us, our parents and grandparents to communicate and learn from each other across state lines for essentially very provincial state laws. Sam was a member of the commission because I was a claims adjuster back then, and I had cases with Sam's office, and I knew what a character he was. And I also audited his course on workman's comp and admiralty and related fields at Suffolk Law School. He was quite a character. I, my memory of him was uh, then an older man, uh, probably in his 70s or, or, or maybe even a little older, with this battered briefcase and sp- you know, his brain was working a lot faster than his mother. What was he like as a member of the commission and perhaps the only really, you would say, progressive, if not socialist-leaning member of of the commission? How did he interact with uh, these other folks, the Liberty Mutual executives and the business and industry folks?
0: Yeah, I think actually people thought he was a bit of a character and really liked him. I, one of the things that your comments made me think about, one of his favorite expressions was when somebody would proposed something that he didn't like. He'd say, "Well, that's a snare and a delusion." And that was was he must have said that fifty times or a hundred times during the work of the National Commission. But and he he, he would say that.
1: The, he, yeah, he would say that in law school class as well. I remember. I remember that phrase, "a snare and a delusion." Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a snare and a delusion. And uh, yeah. well, I tell you, the other thing that the other person that I think you were knew about or knew of certainly, uh, was Mel Bradshaw, who was at the time, I think, executive vice president of Liberty Mutual, the biggest workers' comp carrier at the time, certainly. Mm-hmm. And if you want to think about supporting federal standards in what the insurance industry was, we had a, was an interesting history on this, a little digression here, but on, on how the commission operated. We had this commission that would meet in the mornings in Washington, and, and then people would go off. To, all the members would go off and have lunch with their constituencies, and then they'd come back after lunch. And they back away from the agreements we'd make in the morning. And so, this became a, a kind of a, a problem. And when we got to the point, critical point in the commission's life, where we had a federal standards issue hadn't been talked about, I wanted to get into that topic, and I didn't really think it made sense for have people run off to lunch and get themselves chewed up for even thinking about this. So Dan Doherty was a, a member of the commission who was a, from uh, Delaware, and sorry, from uh, from Maryland, managed to get the governor's boat, governor's yacht. And so we had a meeting on the governor's yacht and, and we went out in Chesapeake Bay or whatever it was and ended up going to a little town called Columbia and had lunch there. And we were isolated. Nobody could talk to their constituents and get their, you know, get their views changed. And so we tentatively reached an agreement. That we were going to have a federal standard. Now I often thought about the fact in this day and age. You know, this is before cell phones or internet and so on. The fact that we were 100 miles away from Washington and people, and there was hardly any phones. There were no phones on the boat. We made sure of that. Nobody could contact their constituencies to make sure that. You know they were following the party line, and we so we agreed tentatively to these federal standards at, on this trip on the boat. And then this is our next to last meeting. The last meeting we had a retreat, a former CIA retreat out in um, out in Virginia. That we had only a few, very few landline phones, and of course no cell phones or anything. And. When we were out there, we were also pretty isolated, and it was deliberately done to make sure we, you know, we could hold ourselves together. Between the, the next to the last meeting on the boat and the final meeting, the word had gotten back to the White House that we were thinking about federal standards, and so there was some pressure. Contact was made with several of our members, and to try to persuade them that we don't want federal standards in workers' compensation—that uh, was just too revolutionary of an idea. Hmm. The person that held it together was Mel Bradshaw from uh, Uh, Liberty.
1: Liberty Liberty Mutual,
0: the executive vice president. So, you know, this is your earlier point about the insurance industry industry didn't really like federal standards. Mel Bradshaw and the other insurance people on the commission, I think, were convinced that, to put it in my terms, the conservative solution here was actually to have federal standards. Because if you didn't do something like that, the system itself was going to self-destruct because there was this inner this competition among states and as you've seen in some things i've sent you i actually it was an issue that i had identified in my dissertation back in the, published in 65 that the real flaw if you will of workers compensation in this country is that it is a state run system and that employers are constantly Trying to convince legislators that if you don't have a low workers' compensation premiums or rates, the state's going to lose all the employers. They're not going to be able to attract anybody, and those of us who are here are going to run away. And so, it became a, uh, a real force. It was in existence uh, before my poor, I wrote my dissertation in '65. It was certainly an issue that was quite aware to the National Commission members when we wrote our report in 72, and there's a long discussion of the specter of the vanishing employer in, in the report and how this was driving legislators to, even legislators who had good intentions about this thing, got, in a sense, bamboozled into saying, if we don't cut our benefits or cut coverage or something, we're going to lose all our employers because they're going to move to State X, state Y. You can always find some other state that had lower rates than yours, uh, pretty much. So it was easy enough to raise that spectrum. Now, I, my dissertation, I had looked at this issue pretty carefully and found that the differences among states in cost after you adjust for industry mix and so on were really trivial. You know, half a percentage point on average of payroll uh, at most among the states in terms of the average employer. Now, obviously, some extreme cases go beyond that, but by and large, I felt then, I felt now, and the National Commission felt that there was no reason you couldn't have a state system under the control of the states without having this runaway employer thing, but the specter was so dominating a factor in state legislatures that you had to do something to convince states that, that they had to have decent laws, or you're going to have this race to the bottom. Essentially, every state's going to figure out they got to keep cutting their benefits, or certainly not increase them, or they're going to lose their employers. Yeah. And so that was a domin- That was an explanation that we gave in the report, and it's it at the time was persuasive to everybody in the commission, unanimous report. And I think they bought into this because they saw it. I mean, we were around to various states. This is part of the outcome of our hearings that, in fact. You would find states saying, you know, we've got a lousy law here, but we were, you know, we can't increase it because our next-door neighbor state has got even worse laws, right. and if we increase our laws to make them a decent law, we're going to lose all our employers in that other lousy state. So then, that's what that's the rationale for federal standards, and I think it's still a rationale for federal standards.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There was a a period after the commission report came out for a year or two, I would say that. We had a pretty good consensus among insurance and employers and so on. The federal standards were okay. But that consensus broke down, in part ironically, because Javits and Senator Williams from New Jersey introduced legislation before our three year period was up. We said, give the states three years, and the laws were so overboard in terms of what the federal standards are going to be, faith healers, for example, who had to be protected. Mm-hmm. Every state had to allow faith healers to operate. I mean, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And John Lewis, who was the vice chair of the Council of the National Commission, and I testified in Congress against the Williamson Chavitz bill. And then, so it, it it kind of floundered there in the 50s and in, in the 70s. The 70s. The administration was, in sense, fighting our recommendations in in terms of... uh, There was an interdepartmental task force that was appointed, uh, that was operating under Ford, that actually, uh, essentially, was a way of holding off federal standards, and then by the time, eventually, we got to 1980, the the political environment changed so much that, essentially, the 80s, the system held steady. A few states improved their laws, a few cut their laws, but costs were going down for the first half of the 1980s.
1: All right. You know, John, this, this might be a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'd like to talk about the next era post the uh, 72 report, the, the era. So uh, right now, we're going to take a quick break for some messages from our sponsors. And we'll be right back with uh, Professor Burden. Mara's case is the number one law practice management solution tailor-made for workers' compensation firms. Streamline your practice with Merus Case's easy to use all in one platform. You're empowered to breeze through case and document management, workers' compensation forms, e filing, calendaring, and invoicing. Learn how Merus Case can increase your firm's efficiency today. Visit That's MerusCase.com. That's M E R U S C A S E.com. Get civil, and you get a fast, custom built website that looks great brings you clients, and drops them right into your firm's systems. Civil partners perfectly with small firms by building the fastest sites in legal, handling digital marketing, enhancing your leads, and providing transparent analytics. They're civil to your other tech, too. Civil websites integrate with all legal case management systems, including Clio, Smokeball, MyCase, and Lawmatics. Get a free site audit with a no-obligation 15-minute demo about what Civil can do for your website. GetCivil.com. That's dot com. All rise with civil. Well, welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters here on the Legal Talk Network with uh, my guest, Professor John Burton. Uh, we left off with the published commission report and I guess if we were to look at uh, the first 40 or 50 or 50 half century of workers' comp as the era before the 1970 to 1972 study, we now have 45 or more years post-1972. And looking back here now at the end of 2018, the beginning of 2019, I think we can identify two significant eras after 1972. And John, I think you might refer to the first period after the commission's report as the Reformation period, which probably went from 1972-ish to perhaps the end of the 80s, beginning of 1990. In a short amount of time, what transpired in this so-called Reformation period insofar as the state of workers' comp around the country?
0: I think that the states responded um, partly out of fear that there were going to be federal standards and partly because I think the National Commission laid out a fairly clear set of recommendations that we considered essential in terms of almost entirely focusing on the adequacy and duration of cash benefits because those that was the main problem we saw at the time. And states vastly improved their laws. I mean, when we, when we were the statistics show that you know when the in 1970 the majority of states the maximum weekly benefit was less than $100 a week below the national poverty standard by the late 70s most states had actually improved their their maximum weekly benefits so that they were at least 100% of the state's average weekly wage which was vastly greater than it had been a decade
1: earlier yeah let me give you an example i was just getting into the field in 1969, 70, 71, and uh, my memory was that the state maximum in Massachusetts, keeping in mind Massachusetts was and is probably a more progressive state labor-wise uh, than many others around the country. Back when I was a claims adjuster, the and before the commission issued its report, our maximum weekly benefit, the most an injured worker could collect regardless of what his or her wage was, I think with $77 a week, it might have gone up to $90 or $95 a week. Once the commission report came out and one of the essential recommendations was that the maximum benefits should be tied into the state average weekly wage, either at 100% or even 200% of the average wage, Massachusetts' average wage in the mid-70s, right after the report, was around, I think, $212 a week. So we went up as a result of the report of the commission from just under $100 a week to $212 a week. And then it it steadily you know, being indexed to the state average wage, we went from the 200s into the 300s. And of course, now it's uh, here in Massachusetts over $1,000 a week. So we had this period of states in an effort to comply with as many of these 19 essential recommendations as possible to stave off the threat of a federal takeover. We saw for the period of maybe the first 15, 20 years, an increase of benefits around the country. Now, as a result of that, I was not great in economics. Uh, I did EC 101, and that's as far as I went. But when you raise benefits, something else happens. And, and that became apparent as we got into, deep into the 1980s. And that was what? Rising cost of insurance, Correct.
0: That's right, although it's interesting because the first half of the 80s, the costs were going down. Mm -hmm. What happened in in the—I don't think we quite know all the explanations of what happened from, say, 87 on, but whatever it was, uh, costs started going up pretty rapidly. Now, one of the factors was historically workers' compensation, two-thirds at least of the benefits had been cash benefits, and the other was— medical benefits
1: and that started to spike
0: and, and that started to spike in the in the late um 70s and it was driven in part by the fact that there was a lot of concern about health care costs outside of workers compensation and so you had a whole bunch of reforms that went that started in the in the in the 80s the late 80s in the general health care system limitations of certain courts deductibles co-insurance preferred provider organization, other kinds of managed care, and workers' compensation didn't initially have any of those things. And Mm so if you had a marginal case, say a back case, where maybe there was an issue of whether it's work-related or not, uh, there was a lot of pressure on workers to get that case into Workers' compensation because the medical benefits and workers' comp were still an old system and kind of paid pretty much the full cost of the medical care. Mm-hmm. And whereas, in the if it wasn't work-related, you're going to end up having a deductible and so on. And right. it also it was the case that practitioners, the doctors, much preferred to have these cases in workers' comp because they were going gonna higher payments too right. than if it was treated as a a non-occupational injury. Um, so, I think the we we got a lot of shifting of cost of health care that really kind of started to drive the system cost up in the late mm-hmm.
1: '80s. And we saw that we we saw that in Massachusetts, and we saw that uh, yeah. you know the Massachusetts miracle, which brought Mike Dukakis to prominence, shortly thereafter suffered uh, you know the the effects that, that other states had around the country, and all of a sudden. Workers' comp costs and premiums were yep. really high in Massachusetts, and that it was not unusual. And that, I guess, might have begun the, the second era. We had the Reformation. Mm-hmm. And right. now we have the Counter Reformation yeah. period, which guess, start, right. yeah. yeah, started around 1990. I feel like we're talking about Christianity, the history of Christianity in the Middle Ages here, but, well, but we had this. It's, con- it's, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to take the analogy too far, but um, you know there are yeah. some uh, some parallels there. But and so we, we have been in, and we're probably right still in this Counter Reformation period. It's been now maybe 25, yeah. 28 years that we've seen the right. yeah. the pendulum shift the other way. So, give us a you know a brief overview of, of the reaction to uh, the '80s.
0: Well, I think I think that you you put your finger on the uh, what what I would call you know what I'm, my concern is is that since the since about 1990, a combination of factors took place. Um, you, you had costs going up rapidly in workers' compensation. You also had in the early '80s a regulated workers' comp insurance industry which meant that insurance commissioners had a great deal of influence on what rates were going to be approved. And it turns out that in a lot of states, insurance commissioners did not approve the rate filings that were necessary to keep the insurance industry solid. And so for a period of what six or seven or eight years from in the late 80s, and early 90s, the workers' comp insurance industry was losing money, including after you took into account investment income. And that really set the alarms off, bells off for the insurance industry because they, you know, they just couldn't afford to do that. And so you had a shift in the political environment. Incidentally, it also one of the consequences of this is that the insurance industry and workers' comp has essentially now been deregulated in almost every state, so that we no longer would have the possibility of, of insurance commissioners holding down rates. Uh, if they're going to, if they're going to go up, they they go up and. Likewise, they can go down as they have in, in many years. That was a factor. Then you had um, as another f- factor on the, the practical factor on this thing, workers' compensation being a state-run program. Historically, this had been an issue that was of central concern to the labor movement at the state level, and so that the state level, in a number of states which had strong unions, uh, they were able to get laws passed that were relatively favorable, and to hold off adverse reforms. Well, essentially what's happened since the 1990s is the labor movement has disappeared in a lot of states. I mean, we've had a national, uh, other than the public sector, essentially we're now less than, well less than 10% of the labor force is organized. And so the politics of this changed
1: considerably
0: in a lot of states. In states like historically were strong union states like Michigan or Connecticut, uh, the law. Massa- Massa-
1: Massachusetts. We've seen it here. Yeah,
0: okay. Well, I was waiting yeah. for you to come in on that one. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and uh, so there are a few states that still have strong labor movements. We have a relatively strong one in New Jersey. And those states have been pretty much immune from this. But essentially, you got. Uh, the natural defender of a decent law wipe out politically, and then you had in you know the, certainly the last ten years or so the fact that we were in this serious recession, and a lot of the recession was at the same time you had deregulation taking place in a lot of industries, not just insurance obviously, but you know transportation and utilities and so on, so that there was a lot more competition at the state level which I think made employers even more concerned about whether their state's law was low enough in terms of cost to be to allow them to remain competitive. Mm-hmm. So essentially from beginning in the late eighties and then into the nineties and certainly continuing to the present day, you've had a basically a movement that is attempting to keep the cost of workers' compensation down, successfully keeping it down, but it does so by reducing uh, the adequacy of the cash benefits, it's not so much that the maximums have been held back because most states pass this law, like you had, in, you had mm-hmm. in Massachusetts, which automatically increases the, mach, uh, the uh, index, maximum. Index
1: to inflation. But yeah, we, the durational limits.
0: Right. The thing that has happened since the early 90s is that the compensability issue, whether you're eligible for benefits or not, has become the... the point where state laws have become less and less supportive of workers.
1: Changes in causation standards, major cause as opposed to aggravation. You're you're right. Right. It makes it much harder, especially for the aging workforce, to be able to maintain or sustain a workers' calm claim because all of us, as we age, are subjected to uh, the gradual deterioration of our bodies so that we all have some degree of degenerative disc disease, degenerative arthritis in our joints. So when we have a traumatic injury that produces a disability, we now have an increased standard of showing that the work injury continues to remain as the major cause or a major cause. So it is. it, It has cut down the amount of claims or the duration of these claims. So, you know, we are not yet at the end of the counter-reform. We're still seeing seeing benefits go down. We're seeing premiums go down. I think the costs are not out of control. We're now, I see us in another era. We're having trouble getting the state legislatures to react to this pendulum shift of high benefits, low benefits, increased costs, decreased costs. And I just want to touch on this briefly before we end. We're we're sort of now in an era, at least the last two, three, four years of looking at the courts coming back into this, where legislatures are Loath to act to increase benefits to a level somewhere between where they were and where they've been cut, we are now seeing a tipping point being reached in many jurisdictions with a constitutional argument that the workers' comp remedy is no longer a sufficient, adequate, reasonable, necessary remedy in exchange for the exclusive remedy that the employers. So we are seeing increased challenges around the country in states where People are now turning to the courts to determine whether a mm-hmm. workers' comp statute is in effect constitutional. You, you might give us your thoughts on that. You've been observing this now for, for the last four, five, six years.
0: Well, I, I, number one, I would have to say another piece that interrelates it, it with this is the fact that the legislators, the composition of state legislatures, has changed it's in the changed here in twenty that's years. So much true. True. less more lawyers, less power program- Republicans. Yep. Yep. I, I say this as a loyal Republican, but realistically, it, it's been Republican parties that have taken the lead on scaling back the availability of workers' compensation benefits. And I think the courts have have uh, struck back, and it's interesting that some of these decisions are coming out of states that are relatively conservative states. Florida, for example, there were several decisions two or three years ago mm-hmm. where the Florida Supreme Court, which is generally considered not, you know, not terribly progressive, has overturned some of the legislative changes as being unconstitutional. One of the more recent examples is Kansas, where you had
1: uh, yeah. AMA guides,
0: yeah, AMA guides thrown out, and you had uh, Oklahoma, which is a yeah, very yeah. conservative state, yeah, and it was allowing employers to opt out and set up their own programs that were not workers' compensation, in the Supreme Court in in uh, Oklahoma said that's unconstitutional. So I think there's some kickback from the court system. My own sense is that it's uh, a minor salvation. Let's put it that way. We want to stay with the, it's a, it's a band-aid. Fact, the over, overwhelming, the overwhelming movement of the last 20 years has been, it's been to make it workers' compensation uh, less supportive, less adequate, less equitable. And I'd, I must say, it's my own feeling is I'm, kind of back to where I was in in 1960, being pretty pessimistic about the future workers' compensation. And it's essentially, it's almost an accident that we have this, this problem, the accident being when the program was started at the state level. It's always remained at the state level, even though the Constitution has changed and would allow it to be a federal program or certainly would allow federal standards. But we've been locked into a state system, and the inherent in our competitive society is that states are going to be competing, and the way they compete is to get costs down, and the way you get costs down is to provide benefits that are less adequate and equitable for workers. And I think I'm back to where I was, as I say, in the 60s and really kind of um, uh, depressed, I guess is one way to put it, or certainly pessimistic about the future of workers' compensation Mm -hmm. as being a source of protection, adequate protection for, for injured workers
1: yeah and and as we close and i, I you know I, again i don't i don't like to hear that being somebody who's invested in his career and and I want to see this system, but we you know we the twentieth twenty first century is much different than the twentieth century in terms of the makeup of our workforce. So you mentioned the demise of uh, the influence of organized labor we are now seeing a blurring of even the employer-employee relationship with these new, what we would call the changing economy, uh, we've certainly lost the factories and industrial jobs. We are now moving into a service-oriented labor force. We're getting into robotics. We're getting into the gig economy, and we have safety nets in place that weren't in place a hundred years ago. So that you know, I think the challenge that we have, those of us who Want to see this system continue to improve and succeed is to try to fit basically a 19th, early 20th century model into a 21st century economy and workforce. And that is, I think, where, you know, even if you have a crystal ball, it's going to be very difficult to predict whether we're going to be having this conversation 10, 15, 25 years from now. I think 10, 15 years from now, yes. I think if Workers' Comp is to go. Uh, To become anachronistic in our society, it's probably going to take a a, a half a generation or more to get there. But any closing words you have, aside from maybe a general sense of pessimism about the long-term future of Workers' Comp, at least for, oh, let's say the near term, where we're going, what we're likely to see in the next maybe 10, 15 years, whether it's opt-out or some versions thereof or some of the hybrid system?
0: I think the opt-out is is the major threat right now because there are some states uh, that, although the law was held unconstitutional in um, Oklahoma, um, I think there's a lot of lawyers around who are clever enough to rewrite uh, those statutes oh. in a way that they will be found constitutional. Hmm. And in Texas, which has always been a, it's been the only state that's always had,
1: An opt-in uh, state, yeah, non-compulsory uh, state,
0: opt-in, yes, right. Yeah. But it's, it's a non-mandatory coverage for employers. Let's put it that way. Yeah. There is some evidence now that a uh, movement in in Texas is a lot more. Employers are now dropping workers' compensation there, even though if you do that, you're subject to uh, tort suits. Uh, they're, they're willing to take that risk and. Um, so i would you know i'd love to, i'd love to tell you that there's some optimistic things going on. I do think um there are some states New Jersey's law is still pretty good Massachusetts I think is all right but boy there are it's going to be harder and harder for these states. And then just to give an example of this thing, I've been involved in Iowa a little bit, looking at what's going on out there. Iowa was was one of the few states that actually passed a law that had the maximum weekly benefit of 200 percent of the state average weekly wage. Incidentally, we want to make clear to your listeners that it's not that everybody gets 200 percent of the state average weekly wage. They would get, typically to simplify this, two thirds of their own pre-injury wage or the maximum, whichever is less. Mm -hmm. So that they're, for the vast majority of workers, they don't get anywhere near 200% or even 100% of the state's average weekly wage. They get two-thirds of their own wage, which is a lower number. Um, So I think, you know, there's. I don't know whether we're going to find another solution. I'd like to think that it's possible that uh, something else would come along. But the most obvious thing for more serious cases would be to broaden the coverage of the Social Security Disability Insurance System. But that is, seems unlikely because of the, it's it's in such bad financial situation itself, and Congress is not willing to allow I think a substantial increase in that program for fear of driving the Social Security yeah. disability insurance program into further difficulty. Um, yeah, I mean, we all talk about the old age system running out of money in thirty or forty years. Well, the DI system is already on uh, running deficits and serious problems. So I don't. I don't think in the short run that's going to be a solution.
1: Well, John, I want to thank so you I'll very s- much for for being a guest. Uh, we, I think we could talk about this for another hour or two without even running out of out of time. We Let's could. do this. Let's do this again in about another ten or fifteen years. You promise? I'm all for that. If <laughs> <Sure>. not sooner. <laughs> <I'm> not. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll put it in my account. Well, I want to thank you for being a guest. I want to thank you for all you've done for all of us in the field of workers' comp. And for those of you who are listening, please tune into to um, our next edition of Workers' Comp Matters. And uh, for that, I want to just say uh, have a good day and make it a day that matters. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by Attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk.